you want to join me in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, <clears throat> we continue our study through the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. This is our third, I believe it's our third week that uh, we've been uh, dealing with this passage of Scripture. I pray and trust that it's been a help and a blessing to you um, up until now, and that uh, as we go through it further, that it will continue to be a blessing to you. The main theme of the chapter as we've dealt with it is the resurrection. It is a, a presentation or a, an argument the Apostle Paul sets forth to defend the fact that we will resurrect from the grave one day. And uh, it is a, while he uses Christ as a means to prove that, and gives uh, Christ as the evidence or the means by which we know that that's a reality, there, the emphasis of this passage is not the resurrection of Christ, but it is our resurrection. And really, that's the basis of Christianity. The basis of Christianity is we live for an eternal state. And we look forward to a home in heaven with God. We look forward to being glorified in our bodies to as we as we one day will die in this in this life we will then rise again and our our bodies will be restored with our souls and we will be given eternal bodies or glorified bodies and we will live eternally with God and that is really truly the hope of the gospel and the gospel is not meant to give us hope in this life uh, from the standpoint of comforts, from the standpoint of gratification or satisfaction, that's not the purpose of the gospel. The gospel is primarily meant to give us an eternal hope. It's meant to teach us that there is a resurrection that is coming, and we as Christians will get to experience that resurrection. Uh, John 6 deals with that um, very, very clearly, that the Lord, uh, those who come to the Lord, will, he will raise up on the last day. And that's the confidence that, that they had, was that the Lord was going to raise them up. And so that's been our, the theme of our study has been the resurrection of Christ. And, and so let me say this at, at the offset, if you're here in the building this morning and, and you have a, a bad life, you have a difficult life, you have had a challenging life, you've had a life that's been just full of of different challenges or different difficulties, know this, that there is a life to come. And that all those who are in Christ, this is, this, is, this is the worst that you're going to have to experience. It's interesting, and it's been said by others, that for a believer, this life is the worst. And for an unbeliever, this life is the best. And what we have to look forward to as Christians and followers of Christ is, is a whole new life, a whole new beginning, a whole new creation, if you will. And that's what we look forward to, where there's no tears, where there's no sickness, where there's no uh, sin, where there's no, none of that stuff is present. It's a perfect, righteous environment and righteous world. That's what we look forward to. That is the promise, ultimately, of God's word. So we look forward to that, and we, we learn about it um, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 is the clearest passage of scripture that deals with this or argues for this idea of the resurrection of the body. So the apostle Paul started his treatise in this chapter, in chapter 15, with a positive argument. Matter of fact, the first 11 verses, the apostle Paul gives us a, po a positive argument for the resurrection of believers. He starts off with the gospel 
And he notes that Jesus Christ's resurrection is something that they had already believed in the gospel. And they had already been saved by believing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That was the basis of their salvation. So he starts off with that argument. He then moves on to the argument, uh, another or three other positive arguments. He refers to the fact that the gospel of Christ's resurrection is, is throughout Scripture. The idea of the resurrection is not foreign to the Old Testament. It is in the Old Testament. It is clearly stated in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the resurrection is something that we see throughout Scripture. The resurrection is something that was witnessed by 500 people on one given account. Jesus Christ in his resurrected body was seen by 500 people at an event. And that was evidence to his resurrection. Not only that, but the Apostle Paul's conversion, the way that he went from being a persecutor of the church to being a friend of the church, a minister of the church, was evidence to the resurrection of the dead. So the Apostle Paul gives all of these positive arguments, and the reason he gives these positive arguments for the resurrection of Christ is so that he can later give a positive argument for the resurrection of all believers, that we will all one day be raised from the grave to live eternally with our God. In verse 12 of the first chapter, the Apostle Paul transitions from the positive argument to a negative argument. He moves from proving the resurrection by evidence and witnesses to pointing out the consequences if there is no resurrection. It is at this point in the Apostle Paul's writing that he identifies the reason for this, for this chapter. He says, if you are with me here in, in uh, chapter 15 and verse number 12, he says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Now, this gives us the main reason why the Apostle Paul writes the 15th chapter is that some people who are in the church at Corinth had begun to doubt or question whether or not the dead were raised. And they're doubting of whether or not the dead were raised, whether or not we raised from the dead physically, impacted how they lived their lives. That's why you have, in the first three chapters, you have all of this division in the church. Then you have sexual immorality in the church. Then you have people going to, going to court against each other in the church. And then you have people using their spiritual gifts in the church for selfish gain. And you have all of these things going on within the church body because they didn't think that the body mattered. It was, in, it was unimportant to, after we die, it just, th- it just stays in the grave. So the, so the reason for this letter is stated for us in verse number 12, is that some people have doubted the, the, the biblical, the truth, that we will rise from the dead one day, and by doubting that truth, it had, it had begun to change how they functioned in their life. It started to change how they viewed life in general. We can do whatever we want physically because that's all just going to be thrown away. And you can imagine what that type of theology will do in a world. Matter of fact, I don't think we're too far removed from that type of theology in our world today. Even amongst amongst professing Christians who live completely sold out to fleshly desires because their hope is, is that it's just going to be cast away and not matter in the end. Or maybe that's what their belief is. 
So he moves from this positive to this what if there is no resurrection. He talks about the main point of this chapter. And, and in this text that we're going to read this morning, it is obvious again that these people had not considered the full consequences of their belief. They had not thought it to its, to its natural end. They had not thought through the belief that they were adopting and then it was causing them to live in error. So the Apostle Paul is going to press this question. He's going to press them to what if you are right? What if your beliefs, what if the, what if the Corinthians' belief system was right? What if there is no resurrection from the dead? What if there is, what if the body stays in the grave and there is no, that's literally that's the question that he's going to answer for us in, in these next uh, eight verses. What if the Corinthian people were right? And sometimes we have to stop. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, uh, um, doctrines and religions and denominations in the world that we have today that are teaching us certain truths and certain errors. And we have to stop and we have to meditate to see if what they're saying is, is actually biblically true. And we have to look at it and we have to go beyond the surface and see the the, the long-term effects of what that belief system is going to accomplish or what that belief system is going to leave us in. What if the Corinthian people were right? What if there is no resurrection from the grave? So we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to walk through the text. We're going to look at three things. If you're taking notes, we're going to look at cons- the consequences if there is no resurrection we're going to look at some concerns for how people, how they came to this um, belief. And then lastly, we'll look at some conduct that will help us as a church to avoid this type of error. So let's read the text together, and then we'll um, begin to unfold it. In verse number 12, we'll just start back at the beginning of this um, section. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed... As raised from the dead, in which this word proclaimed here just means preached. It's something that has been preached. And as we read in the previous passage of Scripture, it's something that had been believed. It's something that had been accepted. It's something that had been uh, acknowledged as being truth, which was, the, which was they acknowledged as the means of their salvation. So they, they acknowledge that Jesus Christ had raised from the dead as a means of their salvation. So he says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, okay, he's going to get into some consequences here. If you are right, Corinthians, and there is no resurrection from the dead, what's the first, what's the first consequence? Then even Christ hasn't raised from the dead. The very basis, if you think about it, logically, he's just gone through 13 verses proving that Jesus Christ raised from the dead was the foundation of their belief system. They believed and they, t- and they gained strength and they had hope in the fact that their, the, the resurrection of Christ from the dead was the foundation of their hope for eternal life. They, they had hoped in it for eternity. 
But now they're saying, the, the Corinthians are saying, there is no resurrection from the dead. And the Apostle Paul says, okay, if you're right and there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has raised from the dead. And he goes on. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied, or we are all people most pitiable. In this passage of Scripture, you have three categories of, of consequences, and I'm going to look, just walk through those very quickly for you. Three categories of consequences. If there is no resurrection, these are things that are going to be impacted by the fact that there is no resurrection. The first thing is, is the gospel message is going to be impacted by the fact that there is no resurrection. The gospel ministry is going to be impacted by there being no resurrection. And the gospel merit or the gospel impact is going to be impacted by the fact that there is no resurrection from the dead. Now, now note this. Notice this. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear that if Christ raised from the dead, then we will rise from the dead as well. That is completely, to the Apostle Paul's argument, that is completely inseparable. You cannot separate the resurrection of Christ from the resurrection of believers. But he says this, nor can you preach that there is no resurrection of believers and not preach that there is no resurrection of Christ. So if believers, if Christ resurrected, believers will resurrect. If believers don't resurrect, then then Christ did not resurrect. And you, can't, you cannot discard that connection. It, it must be made, the apostle makes it very clear in connecting those truths so that one cannot be believed without the other. In other words, it's about theology connecting to practical living. I can, I can believe that Christ died for my sins, Right? But can I throw out the fact that I must resurrect as well? That I will resurrect as well. Not just in the resurrection the last day, but the Apostle Paul uses his own testimony, his own transformation as an evidence to the resurrection in the last day. So you can't say, I believe in Christ resurrecting and then throw out the idea that salvation, in a sense, is the resurrecting of you. And the transforming of you. And that's what the Corinthians were doing is they were taking the theology but throwing out the practical application of that theology. How it impacts us. So we want to look at these three, these three things, these three categories that are impacted by the resurrection if the resurrection does not happen. The first one is the gospel message is flawed it tells us in verse 13, and then it repeats it in verse number 16. He says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And what he's ultimately saying here, it, it's, simple, it, it's really simplistic. It's like 2 plus 2 equals 4. And I've just proven to you in the first 11 verses that the resurrection of Christ is, is connected to the gospel of Christ, which you have believed and you have found strength in and you have hope in. So without the resurrection of Christ, when he says, if there is no resurrection, then Christ is not resurrected either, then what's he ultimately saying? What's the 2 plus 2 equals 4? What's the 4 part of it? The gospel is flawed. If there is no resurrection from the dead, that means Christ did not raise from the dead. And if Christ raising from the dead is essential to the gospel that you are preaching, then the gospel that you are preaching is flawed. It's interesting, the Greek terminology that's used here in this passage of Scripture doesn't just mean that, it, it is, that the, 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 the gospel falls short. It means that the gospel is an error. If the resurrection doesn't happen, the gospel is not just falls short. The gospel is not the gospel. The gospel is not truth. The gospel is a lie if the resurrection does not happen. If the resurrection of Christ has not happened, the gospel is untrue. And he connects it to the resurrection. So if the resurrection of mankind doesn't happen, the gospel is, is untrue. The gospel is flawed if the resurrection of Christ does not happen. And if the resurrection of Christ, of, if the resurrection of man doesn't happen, then the resurrection of Christ doesn't happen either. A gospel without the resurrection is like a cross without an empty tomb. It's like Good Friday without Easter. It's like a debt being paid but never being applied to the individual to whom it was paid for. It's like sin being covered but not removed. The gospel becomes bad news if there is no resurrection. It is not good news. The gospel becomes a promise to mankind that can never be fulfilled. There is no means of fulfillment if there is no resurrection from the dead because the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of the gospel is in the salvation of a believer, which is a resurrection, but it is also in the final resurrection of that same believer. The promises of God have no means of fulfillment if there is no resurrection from the dead. Satan wins. Jesus loses. Jesus is still in the grave today. He is impotent to deliver. He is no different than any other who has tried and failed to deliver. He has no right or means to offer any hope, any help, any comfort, confidence, strength, or deliverance. If the resurrection doesn't happen, the gospel is untrue. And if believers don't resurrect, then the resurrection didn't happen. That's the argument that the Apostle Paul is making here. Listen to these verses in regards to the gospel message being flawed. Romans 1 and verse 4 says this, And he was declared to be the Son of God. Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. If there is no resurrection, Jesus Christ has no claim to being the Son of God. 
First Peter 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he hath caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's salvation. Jesus says to his disciples in John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. In other words, all of the works of the Holy Spirit, everything that the Holy Spirit accomplishes for us in this life or accomplishes through us in this life, everything that the Holy Spirit does is a result of the resurrection. If Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead, the Holy Spirit has not come down from heaven and has not transformed us and is not living through us today. We do not believe this to be true, do we? This is the argument of the Apostle Paul. He makes it clear. It is impossible for Christ to not have resurrected. And it is equally impossible, Corinthians, for you not to believe that you are going to resurrect one day. The gospel message is flawed if there is no resurrection from the dead. The gospel ministry is futile. He goes on beyond the verse there in verse 13 and he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. The word preaching here is not just implying the, the preacher. It's, literally, it's implying the message that is preached when you're preaching the message of the gospel, if the gospel is not true and there is no resurrection, then it is an empty message. It is a useless message. It is a message that is void of truth. I mean, honestly, folks, I'm just going to say this to you because you're my family. You're wasting your time being here if there's no resurrection from the grave. You're wasting your time. That's what his words are, not mine. The gospel message is worthless if there's no resurrection from the grave. It is worthless. It is vain. It is vanity. It is empty. There's nothing in it at all. The gospel message proclaimed, he talks secondly about their faith is vain. The gospel response is vanity. What do we seek for when we preach the gospel to people? We, we seek to drive them to faith, don't we? We seek to drive them to trusting in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We seek to press them to trusting that. He says, if you're pressing them to have faith in a message that's not really true, you're pressing, into something, pressing them into something that is vain. It's empty. The response sought is worthless if the gospel is not true. The last thing in this portion is the, in, in regards to the gospel message is futile is the preachers are, are false witnesses. The Greek word here is pseudo-martus. It literally means, a pseudo means to be false. And, 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 and martus is witness. It is a, uh, we get the English word martyr from it. It's a false martyr. It's someone that's been martyred or witnessing for something that doesn't, isn't really true. It doesn't really matter. 
One of the strongest arguments that we have for the gospel being true is the fact that the disciples were willing to give their lives up for for a message that they believed with all of their heart to be true. They were willing to sacrifice their life on the basis of the message of the cross. If that message is false or that message is empty or frail, then the disciples were false witnesses. I believe that there's an importance here to the fact that I, I don't think that the Corinthians had any animosity towards the apostles. I don't think they had any animosity towards the apostle Paul. What the apostle Paul is saying is, hey, if you guys believe that there's no resurrection from the dead, you're calling me a liar. You're calling the apostles liars. That was significant to them because they had, I think they had a, a level of respect for these men as their pastors and ministers. The message is worthless. The desired end of faith is worthless. The preachers are all liars if there is no resurrection from the grave. Jared read it this morning, Galatians 1 and verse number 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let them be anathema. The word means finally judged. Let them be condemned. The last of this, of this thought in regards to the gospel, um, the consequences of the, there being no resurrection is that the gospel merit is fruitless. He goes down to the end here. He says in verse number 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has if Christ not been raised, your faith is futile. The word here means fruitless. It doesn't have the impact that you expected it to have. If you're trusting in Christ for salvation, then your faith is not going to produce the fruits that you thought it was going to produce. It's not going to accomplish the things that you thought it was going to accomplish. The main thing, number one, he mentions here is you're still in your sins. If there is no resurrection from the grave, then Jesus is still on the grave. There hasn't been any victory over Satan. There hasn't been any victory over sin. There hasn't been any victory over anything. It's been ultimately defeat. And all of the people who have been trusting in Christ to deliver them from their sins have been trusting in something that is a lie. That's his argument. Your faith... If there is no resurrection, your faith is fruitless. It will not accomplish what you think it will accomplish. You will remain in your sins. You will be, you will be guilty before God on judgment day. You will have no power over those sins. You will have no victory or no hope. All of the things that the resurrection provided are not true if the resurrection does not happen. Listen to this. Second reason why, or second fruitlessness of the gospel, if the resurrection isn't true, is that those who have, those who have died before us are in hell. That's what he says. Many of us know people that have died, know people that have... He doesn't just say that. He says those who have died before us, who are trusting in Christ... Those who have died before Corinthians, listen, we're the Corinthians this morning. Corinthians, those who have died before us, if there is no resurrection from the dead, even though they were trusting in Christ, they're in hell right now. That's Paul's argument. 
If there's no resurrection from the dead, then all of those who trusted in Christ have ultimately and finally been condemned. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And then in verse number 19, he says, if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. And the final, the final part of the fruitlessness of, the, of a gospel that doesn't have a, the resurrection is, is simply that we as believers are pity, pitiable. And another way of saying it is, is pitiful. We are most needful of pity because we are believing and trusting in a gospel that doesn't have any power to do anything, any power to save. Especially, especially when you when you when you connect the sacrifice that the apostles were making on behalf of the gospel. Okay, so I, I would say this to you: very few people would be able to say, "My life is most to be pitied if the gospel is not true." Most of us would have kind of like a, "Yeah, well, yeah, my life would maybe not be as good as it is," but the sacrifice of the apostles the commitment that they had to the gospel, the dedication that they had, even to the point where they were giving their lives, they were giving their lives on a regular basis for this message. It makes sense for them to say that if the message is not true, then people should pity us because we've committed our lives wholeheartedly for this gospel message. There's something to be learned from that for us in regards to what our commitment is to Christ, would we ever be able to say, would, we ever, would, would, would you, would I ever be able to say, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, my whole life would be worthless? See, that's what the apostles could say. Because their life was totally committed to Christ. Not, not, not 50%, not 7%. They were committed to Christ all the way. So if the message of Christ failed then they were, what they're saying is, is that, man, you should pity us because we committed our lives to something that is false. So he says believers are, pit- are pitiable. All Christian sacrifice is laughable. All Christian sacrifice is laughable. All Christian suffering is laughable if our hope is for this life only or if there is no resurrection from the grave. Because truly, folks, as Christians, when we commit ourselves to Christ, we don't enter into a better life in this world. We enter into a more challenging and difficult life in this world, and we look for a better life in the next. If the next is not true, if the next is not a a reality, then, then we should forsake the gospel because it's not going to get anything accomplished. But it is true. And that's what the Apostle Paul is arguing. He, he goes at it from a negative perspective of what if, what if the gospel, what if there is no resurrection from the grave? And what I would say, I mean, I believed in the resurrection of the dead before I read this passage of scripture or studied it out, but I would say as I read it, it would just be more affirming that, man, there, there must be a resurrection from the dead. There has to be a resurrection from the dead. If there's not a resurrection from the dead, then, then our whole belief system is our whole belief system, fall, it crumbles. It falls apart at the seams if there is no resurrection from the dead. 
And you can't have it both ways. You can't have Christ's resurrection from the dead and us, our body, staying in the grave. That's what the Apostle Paul is arguing. You cannot have it both ways. If you believe that mankind does not resurrect from the grave bodily, then you must also believe that Jesus is still in the grave. If you believe that Jesus is not in the grave anymore, you must also believe that mankind will rise from the dead as well. And you must believe that Jesus Christ raises us from the dead when we get converted. We become a new creature. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 is not a passage of Scripture that refers to eternal resurrection. It's a passage that refers to resurrection at salvation. If anybody be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's where the Corinthians were struggling. It's like, let me have Jesus, right? Let me have Jesus, but, but let me live however I want to. And we'll just throw that all away when we're done and I have Jesus and I'll go to heaven. Is that not modern day uh, Christianity? Give me Jesus, but let me do whatever I want because I don't really want to be committed to Jesus. I don't want to ever have to say, well, if Jesus, if Jesus comes up to be a failure, then my life was miserable. But truly, isn't that what Christianity is? Isn't Christianity a sold-out individual committed totally to the cause of Christ, committed totally to the person of Christ because of how much we love him? Imagine being married to somebody and walking through life always thinking and wondering of what day are they going to forsake me? What day are they going to, we're not going to be connected anymore? You're not going to have a strong connection. It's when you're you have this faith and this trust and this connectedness that makes for a strong relationship. The same is true. Well, what if Christ fails? Well, I'm going to make sure that I have a lot of other things going for me. It's not going to ever create a relationship with Christ that you need and that you desire. So these are some consequences the Apostle Paul presents to us. If there is no resurrection, there is consequences. And this brings us to our second thought this morning is concerns. What are some concerns that come out of this? What are some concerns that come out of embracing uh, doctrinal error or flaws? Because there's a reason the Apostle Paul is writing this is that the people had begun, begun to embrace things that weren't true. And I want to just give you some thoughts to consider in regards to just bringing it home for us, where, where, where we can benefit from it. The Apostle Paul says this in Galatians 1.6. I am astonished, Jared read this as well, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, deserting Christ, who called you into the grace of Christ and are now turning to a different gospel. The Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians that he was, he was amazed. He was astonished at how quickly they went from being saved by grace to being living their life by the flesh. He tells them that in verse number three, chapter 3, he actually calls them foolish. He's like, you guys are foolish if you believe that you start in the spirit and then you end in the flesh. There are, there are some concerns for getting into or going down a path that's not healthy. Let me just give them to you. Remember this, doctrinal error has catastrophic consequences. Doctrinal error has catastrophic consequences. You need just walk down the road a little bit of that doctrinal error. 
You need to just put piece A and piece B together and then piece C together and the puzzle picture starts to take effect. If you just have point A and you just have puzzle piece A and you don't have the rest of the puzzle, you might start to adopt a a theology that's errored. And it will ultimately end, think about it, do you think that the Do you think that the Corinthian people, when they adopted the fact that there is no resurrection, believed that ultimately that led to them adopting the fact that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Do you think that they believed when they adopted the fact, hey, we can live however we want because there is no resurrection from the dead? Do you think that they believed when they said that, that they were actually undermining the very gospel that they had trusted in for salvation? Do you know the reality of it is? They never even thought about it. They never even thought about step two, which was a natural consequence to step one. They just simply embraced this theology that allowed them to do whatever they wanted in the flesh. They could live however they wanted in the flesh. They could do whatever they wanted in the flesh. They they didn't have to be committed to Christ to be his follower. You know, the whole idea, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That was like thrown out the window because now I can have Christ and have all my flesh too. The idea of, in Matthew 6, you cannot serve two masters. You will love one and you will hate the other. Let's throw that out the window because now I can have Christ and I can have all of my fleshly desires. What he's saying is they didn't think through the process that, that by denying that you rise from the dead as a human being, that you're going to raise up just like the grave was empty when Jesus walked out of it, your grave is going to be empty one day, and you are going to physically be restored to your, to your soul, and that that matters. And when you throw that theology out, you are impacting other theologies in your life that oftentimes you don't think about. You don't think, we don't think about them. So note number one, doctrinal error has catastrophic consequences. It has catastrophic consequences. Once you start considering certain things and losing sight of the biblical truth, there is no stopping where you're going to end up. Number two, doctrinal error often results from individual desires. It often results from fleshly desires. If somebody can present to me an alternative way that enables me to do whatever I want and to live however I want and to give my life to me and to serve me in life but yet still have Jesus, my tendency in my flesh is going to be to take that on full bore, right? Our doctrinal errors often flow from our desire to satisfy, satisfy ourselves. We want to be able to satisfy and gratify ourselves. We want to have both worlds. And so when, the, when a, and listen, the devil, is a, the devil is a master of offering. The devil offered Jesus, we talked about this yesterday, the devil offered Jesus all of these temporary satisfactions and gratifications, but only on the altar of the things that were eternal. Jesus could have had everything that you and I could ever desire from an, in an earthly perspective from Satan if he just simply sacrificed and bowed down before him. Can can I submit to you that Satan is offering you the same thing? 
That he is saying, I will give you whatever you want in this life if you'll just kneel down before me and make me your God? Mark says, a man who desires to save his life will lose it, but a one who loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? And then he says this, and what will man give in exchange for his soul? This is what he's saying here. We have desires. The Corinthians had fleshly desires. They liked certain preachers. They liked to to have relations that weren't godly. They liked to take their brother to court and get, get extra money. They liked to glorify themselves by their spiritual gifts. They liked to do all of these things in their flesh. What the Apostle Paul is telling them is stop thinking in your flesh. Stop living in your flesh. Stop living for yourself and realize that you're committed to an eternal life, an eternal resurrection. Doctrinal error results from individual desires. It just seems logical to us. We create beliefs. We create, know this, we create beliefs that line up with our desires. This is called idolatry. We create God, we create a God that fits what we want. We create a God that fits what we want. Number three, doctrinal errors are subtle, deceptive, and destructive. This is all under concerns. Doctrinal errors are subtle, deceptive, and destructive. Listen to me. In Genesis 3, when Satan came and tempted Eve, the Bible says that he was more crafty, more subtle than any other creature. It didn't say that he was just going to come and like, yeah, I'm not going to try to deceive her. I'll just come right out and say what it's like. No, he was more crafty, more deceptive than any other creature that was created. He was coming at her with deception. John 8 tells us that the devil is the father of deception. He's the father of lies. He's a deceiver. He's not going to come at you with things that are blatant. He's going to come at you with subtlety. He's going to come at you with deception. He's going to cover it in nice, beautiful lights, make it look pretty, and never tell you the cost of it in the end. That's what he's going to come at you with. He's going to flash things in front of your eyes, and you're going to think, man, this is going to be cool. This is, I really want that. My flesh really wants that. He never flashes in front of your eyes what the consequences are. He never shows you the broken marriage. He never shows you the kids who don't know where their dad is or where their mom is. He never shows you the, 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 the drunken stupor in the, in the gutter. He doesn't show you those things because he's a deceiver. He shows you the lie. He makes it look like something that it's not. Error in doctrine, folks, is not just going to be blatant. It's just going to be flawed just enough to make everything else a disaster. Satan simply questions Eve in Genesis 3, and all of humanity falls into condemnation. Just think about that with me for a moment. How many things has the world questioned God on in regards to women in our world today? It's what he did to Eve. He went to Eve and he said, listen, Eve, do you really think God thinks that way? 
does the same thing with men. In the garden, he chose to do it with Eve, but he does the same thing with men in, in our world today. He does exactly the same thing. It's just subtle little question. Eve, man, think of yourself sometimes. You know, this food is good to eat. It'll make you wise. It'll open your eyes to seeing things like God does. Come on, Eve. You know what, Satan, that's, you know, that sounds right. And I tell you something, the devil is doing exactly the same thing in our world today. He's just questioning God. Just enough to cause people to say, is that really what God wants? And you know what? People are not in this book enough to know the difference. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, and no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. Number four, under concerns, doctrinal error on the surface, note this, doctrinal error on the surface undermines deep truths. If you make a measurement or a calculation and you're off just by a little bit, but you're only measuring, let's say you're measuring five feet and you're just off by maybe a a 64th of an inch, you're not that far off, and by the time you get to that five feet, you're going to be a little bit off, but you're not going to be too bad. It'll, it'll make sense, right? But you take, that same, you take that same 64th of an inch measurement that's off, and you take that thing out 50 miles, and you'll be off by a long shot. Doctrinal error on the surface will lead to deep, deep flaws in our belief system. Number four, number five in regards to concerns, doctrinal error leads to a downward spiral. One flaw builds upon another flaw, builds upon another flaw, and there's no end to where the flaws, where the flaws will stop. This is, this is what our text describes really in so many ways. From one step of not believing that there's a resurrection, now you don't have Christ's resurrection, now you have a flawed gospel, now you have gospel ministry is worthless, now you have uh, um, the gospel, uh, the effects of the gospel, the fruits of the gospel, there's, there's nothing there. And I can guarantee you folks, Corinthian, the Corinthians didn't think about any of that when they decided to believe that there's no resurrection from the dead. Don't think about any of it. That brings us to our last thought this morning, conduct that will keep us from this doctrinal error. Just three things I want you to take home with you this morning, and I want you to consider about it. How can we prevent ourselves from going down these types of paths? What can we do in our Christian life that will help us not to be deceived by Satan? You say, well, Pastor John, I could never be deceived by Satan. Listen, Eve was... (laughs) Eve, the one who was created by God, who had never known sin... She was deceived by him. We need to be guarded against the temptations of the devil. Let me give you these three things. Number one is just be informed. Read, study, and meditate on, your, on the word of God. Read, study, and meditate on the word of God. Meditate on the things that are true. Handle the truth. I remember I worked at a bank many, many years ago. I worked at the bank, and they would train you to be able to identify counterfeit bills. And if you were a 
uh, front line teller, you could learn how to identify counterfeit bills. So when you would be counting them back, you would recognize them when you when they hit your fingers. They never trained us to identify. They never trained us with counterfeit bills. They always trained us with the real bills. And their concept was simply this: if you're if you're super able to recognize the real thing, you'll be able to identify the faults. And it's true. Scripture even tells us in John 8, 32, when you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So read, study, and meditate on the word of God. Make the word of God the central, listen, even, and, and this is my second thought, respect, and, respect a few trustworthy Bible teachers. Respect a few, I, I will tell you this, spiritual literature has led more people astray than worldly literature. Because it's spiritual and you trust the person who has written it. And they, they have theological background. They have a training and they've taught and, they, and it just sound, they've said something good before. They must be saying something good now. I would tell you to read limitly. I don't know if that's, know if that's a word. Limit your reading. We'll edit that out of the screen. <laughs> edit that out. Limit your reading. What, what I mean is simply this. Read a few people. Read a few people that you know are on the right track. First of all, the first place you should go for spiritual guidance and direction is your pastors. That's the way God organized it. So you can watch me and you can watch Pastor Michael and you can see if we have a life that that reflects a biblical life and you can hold us accountable. A lot of these guys you read, you don't have a clue what they're up to. That's why the Lord set up the church so that you could go to your pastors and you could get help. But then there's nothing wrong with reading some things, but read, limit your reading. Find some guys that you know you can trust theologically and read them. None of us are, none of us are good enough to not be vulnerable to being deceived. None of us. Respect a few trustworthy Bible teachers. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 4, 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. How will they avoid sound teaching? By having itching ears, they will accumulate to themselves many teachers. And those teachers will suit their own passions. This is talking about spiritual teachers. They will find a teacher, listen to me, you can find a spiritual teacher that will teach what you want to hear. You can. And they will lead you down a path that's not biblical. Respect a few trustworthy Bible teachers. Resist the temptation to listening to error. There is a, there is a, there is a temptation in, built into mankind that we want to hear the other side of the story. The Bible says in, in Psalm, Psalm 1 is my favorite, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He does not sit in the seat of the scornful. He does not, there's a third one, but I'm drawing a blank. But the idea of it is, is he doesn't put himself in the path of, of error. But he says his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth fruit in its season his leaf will not weather, and whatever he does, it will prosper. 
Sounds like a pretty good business plan to me. People don't believe it anymore. But it's a biblical business plan. It's a biblical life plan. Be informed. Be patient. Number two, be patient under conduct. Be patient. Don't be reactive when it comes to your beliefs. Don't be responsive when it comes to your beliefs. Be patient. Be slow. You're dealing with eternal things. Work it out. And then lastly is be thorough. The Corinthians' problem was they refused to be thorough. And that what Paul is doing here is he's simply saying to them, did you think about this? 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 And by the time he gets to the last, did you think about, his desire is, is that they would say, we reject what we first thought. <laughs> right? We reject that we say that there was no resurrection from the dead because obviously there is a resurrection from the dead. Think through things to their natural end. Have you ever, have you ever been in a situation, have you ever been in a situation where you were, where you were thinking about something and someone came up to you and said, did you ever think about this? And all of a sudden it like opened up a whole new realm, was like, oh my goodness, I never thought that that would be the, oh, did you ever think about this? And all of a sudden, before you know it, you're five steps down the road and you're thinking to yourself, man, if I would have adopted that belief, I would be, I would be far down a bad path. Anybody ever, anybody ever been there before that's willing to raise your hand and acknowledge it? Okay, we got a few acknowledgers out there. That's what Paul is warning against. You have to think things through to their end. Be diligent and thorough before you make a change in your beliefs. I close with the 2 Timothy 2.15. It says, I'm going to quote it to you out of the King James because that's what I know. It just says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that word study there in the Greek, if you, could, if, you could, if you could take a snapshot of that word being played out, it would be a scholar sitting at a desk with books everywhere open trying to discover what the word of God says. This is thoroughness. Before we make decisions about doctrinal beliefs and changes, we must be thorough because eternity is on the line. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this time together. Thank you for this passage that you've, um, that you've challenged the Corinthians with in regards to their beliefs in the resurrection. But at the same time, Lord, you're challenging us Yes, as it comes to our belief in the resurrection, but Lord, as it comes to biblical truths altogether, we need to be guarded. We need to be committed and devoted to what is right and know that Satan is the great deceiver and he's going to come and try to undermine the truth. Please help us, Lord. Please guide us and direct us. Use us for your glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.